today on EdgeFX. That land raises the vexing question for islands, low-lying ones that are most at risk of sea level rise. What are they going to do when sea level rise hits them? Sam Newton, a PhD candidate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and editor here at EdgeFX, speaks to Dr. Christina Gerhardt, an environmental journalist and associate professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. They talk about Dr. Gerhardt's recent book, Sea Change, an atlas of islands in a rising ocean, which weaves together essays, maps, art, and poetry of island nations in a warming world. Hello, Christina. We were just talking a little bit and got to know each other, but I don't know that I fully introduced myself. I study ocean history, so your book, Sea Change, was particularly interesting to me. I found fascinating and really like it and keep it. And I think one of the things I love a whole lot about it is that I can just pick it up and look at it. It's not something you have to sit down. When I first got the book, I was like, oh, man, I've got to read this whole book before I interview her. And then and then I got it, and it's an atlas. It's a lot of little chapters that you can pick up and read in little segments, which is really fun and enjoyable. So I've I've really liked it. It has an interesting approach, really weaving together the art. It's very beautiful. I love a lot of the graphics in it and the islands, and it has science and poetry and maps. So I'm just curious, why did you decide to use this approach? Yeah, thanks so much, Sam, for having me on. It's great to be in conversation with you about sea change today. And thanks for opening with a question about this approach of sea change. It definitely is intended to encourage hopping around. Part of that is coming from our shorter attention span in this uh, media inundated era that we're living in. So the text, the chapters, there's 49 islands from around the world. Each one has a short text, a couple pages long, typically a map, not always, but typically, and typically a poem or a text by an islander following it. And I decided on this approach, I mean, I should say too, it encourages jumping around and I'm thinking here of island geographies aside from the internet and how we move around the internet. That's one thing I was thinking about with the book. You don't have to read it beginning to end. People tell me they've read the introduction and I'm like, oh no, just jump right in. We don't have to read every single chapter, et cetera. So it really is intended to encourage moving around. It's also informed by the geography of islands. Right. So there are thinkers both in the Pacific and the Caribbean and the Pacific, Epiliha Ofa, and his very well-known essay, R.C. of Islands, in which he talks about the geography of islands and how islanders in the Pacific deem themselves to be very connected. And that's different from how people on continents view islands, which is very remote. Um, Glissant, Edward Glissant from Martinique in the Caribbean, also talks about through his concept of antillianite he talks about this you know island geography but it also is something that informs the very structure of some of his writing and thinking i call sea change a symphony it's polyphonic it brings together various voices and disciplines and one goal is to center the islanders voices so the indigenous pacific islanders for the pacific the predominantly but not exclusively black islanders for the caribbean Another goal coming from the environmental humanities is to bring together the sciences and the humanities, right? So this interdisciplinary approach is one that is common in indigenous studies and cosmologies where disciplines don't tend to be rent asunder, but rather inversely thought together. It's also a concept, this concept of the polyphonic 
That specifically is one that's indebted to the work of Black feminist materialist thinkers, in particular, the work of Christina Sharp and Catherine McKittrick. I think we have enough scientific studies with regard to sea level rise. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think these studies are really important. We need the work of scientists in these reports and more of them. I just don't think a lot of us are going to relax on the couch on the weekend with a scientific report. I might, but I decided the best approach to would be to basically smuggle the topic into a coffee table book, weaving together the art, the essays, the poems, and the science. So it's basically what I call the spoonful of sugar approach to address a really grim topic in the climate crisis. Yeah, thank you. That shows what I think I saw in it, because I do really enjoy looking through it and reading about the different islands. Could you talk a little bit about the process of putting together all these sort of little motifs? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so the book is one that because it's a collaboration among so many different people, it's the first time that I've really done a book that is, you know, this kind of symphony and involves these kinds of collaborations which is part of the symphony, right, is is that I was working with other people. One of the first things I did was to read voraciously on the particulars of the science of sea level rise and its impact specifically on islands. I read a lot about the geography and the geology of islands. One of my colleagues at the University of Hawaii, Chip Fletcher, um, he mentioned that sea level rise is really a story of geology. It's not a story of water, but it's a story of land. And what I mean by that is that you need to look at the kind of geological matter to understand the kinds of impacts sea level rise is going to have. So Florida and nearby Bahamas, you know, just 50 miles to the east, for example, consist of limestone, which I call the Swiss cheese of geology. It's porous. It not only lets water bubble up from below, it also, in some cases, soaks up water. So the Surfside condo collapse, which some of your listeners might remember happened, you know, a couple of years ago in Florida. The minute I heard about that, I thought about sea level rise. I thought about the geology of the area and the fact that water, salty water, had probably soaked up into uh, the condos, you know, foundations and was probably in part responsible for corroding them and leading to that toppling. So I looked at the science of sea level rise. I looked at the geology of islands. I fed all of this information to cartographer Molly Roy, who created the maps. Um, the maps are from an aerial vantage point, which we talked about different ways of mapping. It's a very colonial vantage point. And a lot of sea change tries to decolonize the atlas. But that's the vantage point we decided for most of the islands. The maps show sea level rise for 2020, for 2050, and for 2100. Then I set to work on writing the essays. I did archival research for the text, so the poems or the maps that follow, uh, the poems or the text that follow. And then I also included uh, scientific illustrations and worked with scientific illustrator Zena Duretsky on those. So that's basically, those are the pieces of putting together sea change. That made me think that I could definitely curl up on the couch reading about geology because I love that, <laughs> but understand that not everybody might be into that. It was <laughs> one of the things that I also really appreciated about this is it, each island, it says whether it is 
an atoll or if it's volcanic. And I, I really liked that. It helped for me the way that I think about it. I was like, oh, I, I want to look through. And when I found it, I was like, which, what, what, what is this island? How is it made? Um, so I appreciated that aspect of it as well. You mentioned doing archival work, and I was really drawn to the timelines for each island, um, which also you mentioned in the introduction and how you do it, that you spent time in the archives. And the historian in me would really like to hear more about that part of your research experience. So if you have any highlights from that aspect or maybe uh, some document or picture or something that you found surprising or fascinating, anything that got you really excited while you were or curious in the in the archive. Oh, there's so many fun stories to tell about the archival research and highlights. I'll just say to me, it was really important when working with the genre of the Atlas, which is one of the most colonial genres, to decolonize this genre, right? So, so atlases come into existence as Northern Western, namely European colonizers, are starting to, to voyage and explore. And I wanted to shift that in a number of ways. So first I included for sections off the East Coast of Africa and for the Middle East and then for the Indian Ocean, I included the rich and vibrant history of Arabic geographers and voyagers. So that this isn't a story only about European voyagers and colonizers. I also included the rich and deep history of Chinese geographers and voyagers. And there's more about each of those uh, in Sea Change. But with regard to the maps in and decolonizing the genre of the Atlas, I did go with some of the hallmarks, right? So the yellow of the cover the blue of a lot of the pages inside, those are classic colors, that yellow and that blue, those are classic shades of the genre. But with regard to the maps and decolonizing, I included indigenous maps and sea change. So the book opens with Greenland and an indigenous Greenlandic wooden map. It also includes a stick chart for the Marshall Islands about halfway through the book. And I could say a lot more about decolonizing cartography, and how indigenous mapping works. But let me stick with your question with regard to the timelines right now. Timelines are a really crucial part of this work. I definitely did not want to start um, the each island with 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And when I was doing research on the history of each island, I noticed that a lot of timelines, this depends on what source you use, which, you know, there's a lot, I'm going to avoid a long digression on colonialism and decolonizing there, but I think one should think about which sources one uses and whose knowledge banks are located where and how that came to be, meaning indigenous, you know, colonized people's materials being located in libraries on the West and in the North. And there's a lot of movement afoot about returning those kinds of artifacts right now. But I didn't want to start with 1492. And so when I was looking at histories of islands, a lot of them did start there. And that's a choice, but that's not when the history of islands and islanders starts, right? So the history of a lot of these islands actually goes back thousands of years. In the Pacific, for example, Austronesians, um, which are peoples from you know the, the Asia-Australia region, um, voyaged and were the first people to settle some of the islands in the Western 
Pacific around the equator. That's not what some of the history books will lead you to believe. And I've had to correct, I just got off an interview with somebody who said islands have been settled for hundreds of years. And I was like, thousands. I've also done an interview where I had to correct scientists who said islands in the Pacific were first settled by Columbus and, you know, subsequently, and there were indigenous people who lived in the Caribbean. Um, before that, these are all stories that are included in Sea Change. So really decolonizing timelines was important. So if you look at the timelines for every single island, you will see that I am working to stretch the history back to the earliest signs that I could find in doing historical research for inhabitants, often indigenous, for the Caribbean, um, for the Pacific. Resources that get allocated in terms of which countries, which peoples have departments have, you know, resources allocated to their histories and the documentation of their literatures and cultures play an important role here, right? We have a department of French, a department of German, a department of Spanish at most universities. And then we have, if we're lucky, a department of African studies. That's 53 countries. So that right there tells you a lot, you know, in terms of, we don't think of indigenous peoples as nations as we should. You know, I always tell people when they submit, I'm journal editor of Isle, I always tell them to specify which indigenous peoples they're talking about and to recognize that specificity the same way they would for peoples of other countries. So the timelines are a crucial part of the work. In terms of the archival research, what you asked there, I did archival research at the Newberry Library in Chicago. It has a vast collection of maps in the Ayer collection also of indigenous studies, much of it focused on the Midwest region. And I did a vast amount of research at the Stanford University Rumsey Archives, which is a big collection of maps at Stanford University. Some of the most amazing moments when I was at the Newbury just last summer was when they pulled out a facsimile reproduction of the Greenlandic wooden map. It's a three-dimensional map. They pulled it out in a box. You go into this room, people come out you know, with gloves on, and bring you these things that you pull up with call numbers, which in and of itself is a ceremony that's, you know, just really wonderful to experience. But then to actually be able to see three in 3D, these maps that I had only stared at on the glowing screen or in books, and to get a sense of their shape and their size and their feel was just remarkable. They also had a stick chart that they brought out. They brought out a facsimile reproduction of the Walt Zaymiller map, which is the first map that has... Um, the Americas labeled and islands in the in the Caribbean labeled on it. So those are just some real moments of joy. Archival research is so important because it gives you a different sense of these kinds of things than you will have if you see them, you know, looking at the collections online. A lot of the Newberry's collection can be seen online, but it's just a very different experience. Agreed. I also love being in the archive and and being there and seeing it. There's something very, very meaningful about that. And I do really appreciate your attention to and and discussing the decolonializing the cartography. And especially like just with the archive, there are so many politics around archival work and and you know what gets saved and what materials you have access to and and all of those things. So I think that that is an important aspect of the approach. And I think also an important aspect of this is the the relationships and the people. And one of the other amazing things about the book is just the poetry and the voices that are centered that 
aren't necessarily your voice, but bringing in other voices to tell this, as you said, like a symphony and brought together. So I would like to know, I'm curious about how you selected the works. So the, not your own essays, but the, there's some poetry and other things in there. So how you chose those and then um, what kinds of relationships you forged with the, the people of these islands as you were putting this together. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the question about how I selected the works. Also, my relationships with people, you know, on these different islands. I mean, Sea Change really aims to center the voices, as mentioned, of Pacific Indigenous Islanders and of Black Caribbean Islanders. Um, those are not the only regions in the book, but they are the largest regions. The Pacific, obviously, the largest ocean. I think there's about 20 of the 49 islands are in the Pacific and 19 of the islands in sea change are in the Caribbean. There's some off the west and east coast of what indigenous people call Turtle Islands in North America. And then there's some islands off the west and east coast of Africa and some in the Indian Ocean, more like closer to the Asian mainland. But in terms of the, the works that I included in each section, in addition to the maps and the essays, meaning the, the poems and the texts, I was looking both through the interviews I conducted and through these texts to center the voices, really to, to, you know, to foreground the histories, the cultures, the flora and the fauna of islands as depicted by islanders. So in the poems, you'll, you'll hear about, you know, the day-to-day -day lives of islanders, the experience of colonialism as written about by islanders. You'll hear about, say, breadfruit or jackfruit rather than what a tourist would describe, which probably would focus on coconuts and pineapples, both of which, you know, coconuts are indigenous to islands, but pineapples are plantation food that was brought in and harvested through the plantation style. So I was really looking um, for this kind of imagery to be shared from the perception of people who have lived on the islands. There's a couple of texts. You know, eco-poetry is a newer field in terms of, obviously, eco-poetry has existed forever, but in terms of specifically the engagement with the climate crisis, and there's a lot of Pacific Islanders who work at this intersection. So I'm thinking of poet from Guam, Chamorro poet, and my colleague at UH Manoa, Craig Santos Perez, I have some of his poems, um, Kathy Jetnil Kishner from the Marshall Islands who is not only a poet, but also climate envoy for the Marshall Islands. I have some works by her. I also conducted hundreds of interviews with islanders, so ministers of environment, scientists, fisher folk, farmers, to really learn from them what their firsthand experiences were of the impacts of sea level rise. So one of the impacts of sea level rise is that when you have saltwater coming into a low-lying atoll, and you mentioned this previously, you talked about, you know, the different kinds of islands. There's volcanic or high islands, which as the name suggests are islands that are high or taller. And the image of a volcano with a little peak is, you know, if that's coming to mind, that would be perfect. And then there are low-lying atolls or low-lying islands or atolls. Those are basically volcanoes that have slowly started to sink under the surface of the ocean. And all that remains is the very tippy top of what was previously a volcanic island. And 
you can think of the rim of a coffee cup. So it's kind of a circular shape. It's that rim of the volcan volcano that is all that remains. These tend to be six and a half feet on average, you know, for the Marshall Islands above sea level. When you're that low, any impact of sea level rise is going to have an effect. So back to the impact of sea level rise, when you have salt water coming in, it upsets the, the salt and the salinity, basically, of, of soil. And soil, when it's that salty, it can't grow plants. Um, you know, it can't take up water. It can't grow plants. The other impact on low-lying islands or on atolls is that unlike volcanic islands, they don't have rivers running through them. So for their fresh water, they rely on rainwater catchment. So setting up rain barrels, catching water that falls from the sky. They also rely on freshwater aquifers. Those are aquifers that hang just a little bit below and have fresh water in them. When the salt water gets into them, it contaminates the fresh water. And so again, you have this issue of, you know, not having enough fresh water through this source. And plants, humans, and animals cannot drink salt water, right? This is why we have fresh water, you know, the desalinization um, processes being, uh, you know, worked on right now to desalinize salt water to present more fresh water. So those are two of the major impacts. And so I talked a lot with islanders about these kinds of impacts. Were they seeing more salt sea, you know, saltwater encroachment? Were they were their livelihoods being impacted? A lot of the islands in my book, there's a couple of examples that are anomalies here, like Bahrain in the Middle East or the Maldives in the Indian Ocean or Singapore off the eastern coast of the Asian continent. But uh, aside from some of the anomalies, most of the islands in my book have really small economies. Um, you can measure that by GDP on a national level. You can measure that individually by average income. And that means that people are basically surviving off of you know what they fish or what they farm for their livelihoods, their subsistence farmer or fisher folk. They're not going to the local grocery store um, to get their food, they're or all of it. They are supplementing it. They're not necessarily going to the local restaurant for takeout, right? And so, when you're living that close to the threshold, any of these impacts that I mentioned are going to have a much larger effect, right, on your livelihood. I know schools in um, one part of the Solomon Islands have a shorter day. They close early because hunger is an issue there. Because the subsistence livelihood has been upset. And so students' attention spans are shorter because of the issue of not having you know, enough food. So these are the kinds of impacts that I was looking for people to describe. And um, yeah, that's a lot of interviews throughout the book. That sounds, that sounds amazing in many ways to be able to talk to people firsthand about what they're experiencing, but also sounds like it could be really heavy too. As you were describing that, I was feeling oh, that, you know, it doesn't feel great. I know that you go over this in the book. And like you said, do we need another report on sea level rise? But could you go ahead and tell us how sea level rise works and, and what its sources are? And maybe even expanding on how how islanders themselves have described it to you. I think that would be helpful for listeners. Yeah, thanks for asking about sea level rise um, and how it works. I mean, it has two main sources. 
first there's the melt at the poles, so specifically the glaciers and of land ice in the Arctic and the Antarctic. So I open the book with Greenland for this reason, right? It is the melting glaciers and land ice in Greenland that has impacts around halfway around the globe on the Marshall Islands in terms of sea level rise. Uh, so the, just this week, I'm tracking the news and I'm hearing that we have record low amount of ice still existing in the Arctic. I also closed the book for this reason with the melt of the Thwaites Glacier on Pine Island, which is not really an island, I'm cheating there, in the Antarctic at the South Pole. So it's this melt at the poles that firstly is the reason for sea level rise. The other reason is thermal expansion. So when water heats up, it expands. You can think of dropping an ice cube in a glass. It will melt and it will raise the level of water in that glass. So when your audiences hear about, as we have been all summer, about these record-breaking air temperatures worldwide and you know nationwide as well, we should also think about increased ocean temperatures, because when you have higher air temperatures, it leads to increased ocean temperatures. So the ocean waters, and you know your listeners might have heard about this, the ocean waters off the coast of Florida have hit a record-breaking 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the temperature of a hot tub, right? I mean, that that, of course, makes me think about sea level rise because warm waters, I just thermal expansion, warm waters, I just mentioned, takes up more space. But that is not good for all of the marine life there. There are scientists that are furiously trying to carry out different kinds of work to protect the coral reefs, which die when the temperatures get too high. It's not good for the fish. There have been questions about why fish are beaching themselves in mass numbers um, off the coast of Australia, for example. I'm talking to you right now from San Francisco, which is home, and we have right now, as of last week, another algae bloom in the bay right now, which is a result of increased water temperatures. We had one just two years ago, so I'm an open water swimmer, and I'm now, you know, swimming circles like, you know, a fish in, in the aquarium in the pool because, you know, this is what we've done to our climate. When you think increased water temperatures, I think it's also really important to think about the fact that the oceans have been a sink for both emissions and for ocean for warmer air temperatures. So they've been this carbon sink for a really long time. They've absorbed uh, something, you know, like two thirds of heat and then a, a third or a quarter of emissions. And the oceans are basically stuffed in terms of what they've absorbed in terms of the heat. They can't absorb anymore. Now that concerns me for two reasons. If we have a huge sink for heat or for emissions that we haven't really perhaps been thinking about that has been absorbing the heat and the emissions, and we don't have that anymore, that's not a good thing given that we haven't reined in emissions and then therefore we have the heat. It's also not a good thing for the marine life that I was mentioning, for the fish and all the other kinds of creatures that are in the oceans. That kind of increased temperature leads to ocean acidification, right, which is responsible for coral reefs dying off, but it also has effects on other, you know, on other marine creatures. It is certainly been in the news that heat in the Florida hot tub and global boiling is is at the front of people's minds right now. I think... And as I had mentioned earlier, 
there's a lot of beauty in this book and how you've put it together and and how you've centered islands and islands connect but there is a lot of heaviness too and i think that often when we talk about sea level change and we talk about sea or ocean change and sea level rise we talk about the risk and the peril and that is important to discuss i think it's also really important to touch on resiliency and to to know that people are working on being resilient and and they have been resilient in, in so many ways and you talk about solutions in the book and engineering type solutions and you could definitely touch on those but i'm most curious about what kinds of solutions you found or that were mentioned in the book or in the interviews that you found most compelling outside of engineering and maybe this isn't a super good example because maybe computers are engineering but i was recently uh, i believe his name is simon kofi i don't know if i'm pronouncing that right who is a minister on tuvalu which is one of the islands in the book, they're building sort of a digital space to try and keep work to keep their culture alive if they end up having to leave their island. And when I first heard him talking about this, I I found it really compelling and interesting. And so I'm just curious what you might think about that example or other examples sort of outside of the infrastructure, physical engineering type solutions. Yeah, thanks for for bringing attention to um, Simon Kofi's video, which I also saw with great intrigue about this creating a digital copy, basically, of Tuvalu. Um, And thinking a little bit more creatively outside the box of solutions for engineering. I mean, I, you know, just to go through the engineering that I talk about in the book, I talk about two different kinds of solutions. I talk about um, what falls into the category of hard engineering, which is things like seawalls or raising islands. Kulhumale is an entirely new island that the Maldives has built. So that's a raising island example. Singapore is doing infill as is Bahrain. So that's expanding the size of its islands through this example of hard engineering. I also talk about soft engineering, also referred to as nature-based solutions. And that includes things like restoring and protecting coral and oyster reefs, wetlands, and mangrove forests. But in terms of thinking outside the box a little bit or beyond these um, engineering solutions, there's a number of, of different kinds of solutions that islanders have put forward. And I appreciate your question about solutions because Obviously, I don't need to tell you this, Um, you know, when I'm teaching this topic and in the environmental humanities, I, I, especially, you know, the year and a half that I was at Princeton, I'm just so struck, not surprised, but struck by how impacted younger students or undergraduates, if they're traditional aged, are by the compounding crises that they're faced with. So, you know, sea level rise, you know, the climate crisis, um, more generally, the financial crisis, um, you know, just all these different kinds of things, you know, student loan debt, um, inability to afford a home. And so I think given this cauldron, and the climate crisis feeling huge to undergraduates often, I made sure to tell students that they could focus in on one issue, I focus on islands. I focus on sea level rise, right? Don't try to do everything. 
And just try to get in there and just think about that one particular topic and see where you can make a difference right there. There is a whole part of solutions-oriented journalism in the field of journalism and in the field of environmental journalism, right? Because I work obviously both in environmental journalism and in environmental humanities that I think is really important to be aware of. Yes, Magazine in Seattle is um, one of the examples of solutions journalism. But I think we need to think about that as part of the tools in the toolbox of teaching when we teach in the environmental humanities. And so I included solutions for every single class session. So to come back to your question here with regard to these kinds of solutions, I was struck by Tuvalu's um, digital copy. I'm kind of an old fashioned kid that doesn't have to do with my age because I get get along well with people who are 30 or 40 years older than me, like, you know, in their 80s um, really well. I tend to be old fashioned in terms of technology. And so I thought this was interesting. What it raised for me was the question of the issue it was trying to address, which is really important for sea level rise and the impacts on islands. You need to have, and this comes up in a Kathy Jetnell Kieschner poem, you need to have a passport in order for your island, for your nation to exist. You need to have, as Kathy puts it in one of her poems, a passport. You know, she says, we'll only have a passport to call home. So you need to have land in order for a nation to exist. There's four conditions for a nation to exist. You need to have land. And this this comes up as a result of, of you know, Kofi's video, and it's outlined in one of the articles about it that I saw in The Guardian. Um, you need to have land, you have to have a system of government, you have to have working relationships with neighboring islands. But that land raises the vexing question for islands, low-lying ones that are most at risk of sea level rise, what are they going to do when sea level rise hits them, right? So hence the suggestion of this ingenious, you know, let's make a digital copy. Hence the suggestion and why I went back to some of the engineering solutions of raising entire islands. That land needs to exist. Other solutions that have been put forward that don't address the issue of saving an entire nation as, as a nation in terms of land, but its peoples have been put forward by former head of state, Anote Tong of uh, Kiribati. So when he was president, if people want to uh, learn more about him, and his nation, they can look up the documentary Anote's Ark. So he was uh, head of state of Kiribati, and in that time, he bought land for his people on neighboring island of Fiji. That was in order to permit his people to, as he dubbed this campaign, migrate with dignity. A couple of issues there, which is that Fiji itself is already suffering impacts of sea level rise. People from Fiji are trying to emigrate to other neighboring nations such as uh, New Zealand that are going to be less impacted. The issue of climate refugees is another one that comes up here that could potentially be a solution. Climate refugees are not in the 1951 UN Convention on Refugees, um, which obviously comes out of World War II, the Nazi era and the Holocaust. But climate refugees are not included there because the climate crisis wasn't recognized as an issue at the time, even if scientists, um, you know, going going back to, you know, the scientist foot um, in, in the 1800s had been documenting what was, you know, basically the origins of the climate crisis. 
So that's a term that some people have been suggesting the UN Convention on Refugees needs to be expanded to include. Another example that could, you know, potentially be a solution is the example of managed retreat. On islands, that means moving people from the coastline inland. So in the Solomon Islands, which are volcanic islands, an entire community was moved inland with a lot of community involvement and with a lot of people, you know, scientists, sociologists tracking this effort. So the community was asked, you know, they were the, the science of sea level rise, the impact on its community was explained to them. They were asked about the kinds of impacts that they had already experienced firsthand of sea level rise. And then they were asked if they wanted to move, if they wanted to move, where they would want to move to, what mattered to them in that move. You know, access to water, if you're if you're fisher folk, obviously is is really important and one reason why people live by the waterfront. Um, but these kinds of questions were all put together and they were moved inland. And then surveys were conducted afterwards you know, just to see how people felt about this kind of move. So that's, you know, that's one kind of solution. On coastal regions, I carried out the high waterline walk while I was in Princeton. If your listeners do a quick search for high waterline and Princeton, they'll come up with this. Um, I also did a version of this in Hawaii. So high waterline and Honolulu should bring it up or high waterline, Honolulu and inundation. Basically, we walked and chalked the future shoreline forecast by sea level rise in this small town of Sayreville in New Jersey. And what's remarkable about Sayreville is it was hit by Hurricane Sandy in 2012, and New Jersey offered its residents a buyout through its Blue Acres program. It's a working class, predominantly white, predominantly um, of Polish heritage uh, town, and most of the people who lived along the coastline accepted the buyouts, that high percentage of acceptance is unusual. And most of them stayed in the town. That's also unusual. Towns are really concerned about managed retreat because property taxes are a major source of their revenue. And so if people start to, first off, who's paying for the buyouts? Is it, you know, federal, state, or local? So that's money going out. And then if people are accepting the buyouts, if they're not staying in the city, you've just given money out and you've lost the property tax revenue streams. So, you know, this is something to consider in terms of some of these kinds of impacts. I know in Florida, news has recently been in the headlines with regard to sea level rise. Home uh, insurance is no longer being granted to some homeowners. And you need insurance in order to be able to buy or to build within certain regions, or you're on the hook for sea level rise hurricanes inundating your home. And so that's really, you know, important. Jake Biddle has a book, he's a journalist for Grist, he has a book called The Great Migration that talks about inland displacement, internal displacement. So climate refugees would be a term that would negotiate people moving across national borders. He's tracking a movement within a nation, specifically the U.S., and I think that's also important to consider. But one thing he gets at is the issue of some people not being able to afford home ownership, first off, home ownership insurance. Secondly, the fact that the rates of homeowner insurance is going up and some people can't afford it. And for those who can't afford it, they then can't afford to rebuild and lose everything. And for people who can afford it, they can afford to rebuild in places where they should be rebuilding. 
So, you know, the kind of class inequities that we have um, really get exacerbated sometimes by the inequities baked into the system with regard to, you know, insurance, for example. So these are some of the examples that I would mention. One strategy too, you know, is, and and this is, you know, something we can also talk about, is at the international level, this call for climate reparations, but that's, you know, a whole other topic. If you have time, I would love to hear about or if you just want to touch on reparations, the island nations, I think you mentioned this in your book, are responsible for less than 1% of global carbon dioxide emissions, yet they are clearly disproportionately suffering the effects of global warming, or I guess what people are now calling global boiling. So do you want to touch on if, you know, should nations most responsible offer reparations and what, what would those look like? Right. Yeah. So the climate, yeah, climate reparations is something that comes up at the UN climate negotiations that take place annually, typically at the end of the year. And they bring together 193 nations worldwide, nations from the global south that are disproportionately already suffering the effects of the climate crisis, as you mentioned. They have been calling for climate reparations. And what that is, is a demand from nations in the global south two nations in the global north who are historically the largest emitters. So, you know, namely Europe, historically Europe, and also the U.S., which is historically the largest emitter, for them to pay because they've been emitting so much and these nations on, on the frontline communities are already disproportionately experiencing these impacts. These could, you know, this could look, in terms of your question of what this would look like, this could be structured in a number of different ways. At the annual UN climate negotiations, there are always demands for monies in order to mitigate and in order to adapt. These are not part of climate reparations. I want to be clear on that. Mitigate basically means reduce the amount of emissions that we're putting into the air. So that could include things like transition to renewable energies. A thread that runs through my book, Sea Change, is that formerly colonized or currently occupied and colonized, and this is how indigenous Hawaiians feel about Hawaii, even if people in the U.S. might view it as a U.S. state and a great uh, tourist destination, you know, people in Hawaii still view themselves as, who are indigenous Hawaiians, view themselves as an independent nation that, you know, was occupied. A lot of territories that are occupied, either colonially or present day by the U.S., so that would be Hawaii, Guam, uh, the Marshall Islands um, has a relationship to the U.S., um, Puerto Rico and the Caribbean. These are nations that have a high reliance on fossil fuels. They could all be run by renewable energy. When I say a high reliance on fossil fuels, let me put numbers to that. In Hawaii, we rely on 94 to 95% of our electricity is generated by burning fossil fuels. We literally ship in oil which generates emissions and shipping that in, and then burn it, which is more emissions, in order to generate electricity. It is the dumbest source of electricity ever. And we could be using wind and solar, which we have an ample supply, typically year round, right? And that's true for most of the Pacific. It's true for the Caribbean. And one of the reasons that I think island nations are often tethered to fossil fuel economies, there's, there's a couple of islands that are actually fossil fuel producers, but they're the exceptions to the rule. Guyana off the northern coast of South America would be an example there. But again, there are exceptions to the rule. I think one of the reasons for keeping 
island nations tethered to the fossil fuel industry is to keep island nations tethered, right? So it's a form of power and control. A really exciting example of retooling economies, and this comes back to both this question, but also the previous one of creative solutions, is the work that uh, the prime minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, is doing to radically retool the economic system, the global economic system. It's like her thinking is that huge in terms of what she's trying to do. So World War II not only gave us things like the UN and the Convention on Refugees, it also, in its waning days, gave us the Bretton Woods meeting in 1944 in New Hampshire, which gave us the World Bank and the IMF and all of these loans and the structures by which they indebt nations in the global South. That whole structure is being compounded by the financial impacts and economic losses resulting from the climate crisis. So nations in the Caribbean, for example, like Barbados, are faced with the decision of whether they should pay back loans that they are you know, indebting them to the system, this economic system, or whether they should rebuild from the hurricane that they suffered last year that's devastated their island. And so this is something that Mia Motley is, has been calling for as a radical retooling of this economic system. It has garnered amazing uh, support, and it is something that was being discussed at the World Bank IMF meetings this spring. I'm really excited to track that and see what comes out of that. And then the other thing that I'll leave your listeners um, to look out for and to you know track and to think about is also the fact that at the UN climate negotiations last year, there was a success, which is that after 30 years of pushing for this, nations in the global South successfully secured an acknowledgement of their demand for a loss and damages fund. Loss and damages refers to anything that has irretrievably, irrecoverably been uh, lost or something that has been damaged but could potentially be restored. They're looking for compensation for that. And that can be read as climate reparations. There are nations that are really adamant that this is different from and separate from climate reparations. What was not spelled out was what that funding structure would look like, how monies you know, what entities would pay in? Would it be nations? Would it be multilateral banks? Where would the money be located? How would the money be redistributed to um, the nations that were calling for this? So all of those details need to be hammered out. But those are some examples that I would put forward. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that and sharing everything that you have thus far and, and creating this book for me and other listeners to keep looking at. Like I said, I really do enjoy opening it and reading about an island every day pretty much is when I open it and read about one. I don't, I guess I've got a few days left, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah. So thank you so much and uh, have a great weekend. Oh, thanks for having me on Sam and for the great questions. Such a pleasure to be in conversation with you. That was Sam Newton in conversation with Christina Gerhardt about her newest book, Sea Change, an atlas of islands in a rising ocean. 
You've been listening to EdgeFX, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Sam Newton and me, Rudy Molinick. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag or find us online at edgeFX.net. <laughs>